Welcome to Supreme Myths. My guest today is Professor Aaron Tang at the UC Davis uh, Law School. He's a graduate of uh, Yale and Stanford. He has written a ton of articles. Uh, he clerked for Judge Wilkinson, who happens to be my second favorite lower court judge of all time. We'll get into that a little bit. And Justice Sotomayor. He worked at Jones Day for a bit. Um, and of course, now he's a professor at Davis. And he has a book in progress with one of the great titles of all time, in my humble opinion. The book is called, and we're going to talk about it, Maybe in Error, But Never in Doubt, Our Dangerously Overconfident Supreme Court and How to Fix It. I hope that title stays just like it is. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm so glad you're here. All right. So you have some new and original ideas about the Supreme Court. Listeners to this podcast know um, I think that's one of the hardest things in the world to do, is to have an original idea about anything that's been written about as often as constitutional law and the Supreme Court. So we'll get to your original ideas in a minute. Let's begin with this. Where do you fall on the legal realist formalist spectrum? Like, where are you in the, you know, obviously I'm an uber realist. There are others who are uber formalists, like Michael McConnell, who I had on this pod. Where do you, where do you yeah, sure. So, you know, maybe let's set some parameters. If like the scale is one to 10 and, yeah. you know, one's like maybe you, the absolute realist <laughs> who thinks that, you know, when the Supreme Court decides cases, just politics all the way down. Values, uh, values all the way down, not politics. Values all the way down. Fair, fair. Yeah. Uh, uh, values all the way down. You know, 10 the absolute formist. I think Professor McConnell is a great example. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'd put myself as like a three. Okay. Uh, on that scale, you know, I can imagine I, I, you know, certainly there are tons of cases where it's impossible to look at the outcome and, you know, the SB8 litigation, all the voting rights cases, partisan gerrymandering, Rucho, where it, it's just like the merits rulings, the conservative justices are just, you know, inserting sub their subjective preferences for, you know, whatever the law, uh, 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 however they dress up their legal reasoning, it's just their subjective preferences in disguise. But there are so many cases, I think, where that doesn't happen, even at the Supreme Court. Um, you know, I think you look at Justice Gorsuch's opinion in Bostick, the chief's chief justice's vote in June Medical, you know, Justice Sotomayor's opinion last term in a case called Palmar Santiago that upholds the criminal conviction and removal of a uh, undocumented immigrant based on a felony DUI in 1988, even though the Supreme Court later declares it turns out the felony DUI is not a removable aggravated felony anyways. Why? Just because he failed to exhaust his remedies as required by the statute. Very formalist, right? So I, you know, I see those cases. That's why I'm not a one, you know, those okay. are like maybe lower salience, but but I'm, I'm definitely on that side of the scale. And that and that answer, um, you, you mentioned the conservative justices opinions in and mentioned a whole bunch of cases. And of course, I agree. Um, but I also want your want, want to mention that to you, know, you clerk for Justice Sotomayor, both she and Justice Ginsburg, I think, are, um, you know, people I really respect and admire and like. And especially when we talk about Ginsburg, one of America's great heroes. She, she, she did for women's rights what Thurgood Marshall you know, tried to do for for racial equality and so on. Yet, both of them, Ginsburg is, you know, um, we know what her record is now. And, and since Sotomayor has been on the bench, I think it's fair to say that in cases that we care about that have liberal conservative stakes, they vote liberal slash progressive 98% of the time. It might even be 99% of the time. So when you point to the one time Sotomayor may not have done that, I, I want to say, what do we make of those two women voting their and in their case, their values slash politics, like 99% of the time in cases we care about. Yeah. So, I mean, I think a couple things. 
Uh, one, I think that the two of them, as all the justices are, they're a product of the political system in which we're in. And you can't become a Supreme Court justice right now if you're not reliably fair conservative, fair. reliably liberal. Right. So I, I don't I don't think it's I think it's very hard to blame the individual justices um, uh, for all of it. Certainly, you know, that's what makes some uh, some of what the chief has done, I think, in, in recent years, so admirable uh, uh, resisting his personal impulses, his personal preferences. Uh, um, you know, but the, the, yeah, you know, the other thing is it's a lot easier to vote your conscience in dissent. Right. Yes. When you're when you're going to be losing anyways to vote, you know, um, uh, in line with, you know, subjective political preferences, the rubber really hits the road when you're going to change the law and potentially have, you know, huge consequences for society. Real political upheaval is, you know, the abortion cases obviously are a huge example of this. That's when, you know, people like Anthony Kennedy have a hard time going to bed at night with a given outcome. And that's, you know, th that's the harder, I, I think, situation. So before we get to your the so eventually we're going to discuss your proposal for how the Supreme Court, you know, very generally should look at constitutional law cases. And it's, and it's a unique and interesting proposal. Before we get there, though, um, part of your title is our dangerously overconfident Supreme Court. And I've read your book in progress and uh, such a wonderful part of it. And by the way, Eric Berger, who's a close friend of mine at Nebraska, has written some articles about this, too. It seems like to write a good Supreme Court majority opinion, you have to be positive and sure of everything you say. And the other side is wrong all the way down. And how, you know, and, and, and you, you, you think that's a really big problem. Could you say more about that? Yeah, sure. So first of all, let me thank you for, for reading the book and offering your feedback. I, you know, I think there's a, a line out the door of, of scholars, especially junior scholars who owe you an incredible well, no. debt of gratitude for your generosity and your feedback. So I'm happy to be in oh, that line. You. But, you know, at some point we'll we'll bump elbows in person and I'll yeah. thank you for that. Um, so, you know, I, I don't I, th I don't think this part of my diagnosis is I can't can't claim credit for it. You know, I think Dan, you mentioned Eric Berger, Dan Kahan mm -hmm. at Yale's another person who's written about you know, the certitude with which opinions are written being a dangerous thing. Um, you know, I, I think that's, um, it's hard to say what is the cause. There are many causes of it, but it, the, the Supreme Court is an incredibly self-confident um, uh, institution right now. Right. Um, you know, maybe it's because they're lawyers and lawyers like to argue and lawyers especially like to argue and win. Um, <laughs> maybe it's because of Justice Scalia's influence. You know, he's, you know, the real first um, acerbic personal dissenter. And I think it rubs off on the other justices to makes it sort of normal. But for all these reasons, um, you know, when the Supreme Court, you know, in a case like Brnovich, the voting rights case out of Arizona last term. Um, when Let's just set the stage on that for the, for the non-lawyers in the room. This is a case interpreting, not a constitutional case, a statutory interpretation case interpreting the Voting Rights Act, but of incredible importance because it, it basically laid out the way lower courts should evaluate claims under the Voting Rights Act and made it virtually impossible, I think, to prove a voting rights violation. Go ahead. Exactly, exactly, right. And Justice Alito writes the opinion for the court um, saying, you know, the Voting Rights Act, when it prohibits uh, racial discrimination in voting, doesn't reach, you know, a pair of Arizona statutory practices that the district court found had a racial bias, a racial impact on um, Native American voters, Black and Latino voters. Um, and Justice Alito says, you know, the dissent undergoing a radical project of trying right. to rewrite the statute, to, you know, and, and Justice Kagan fires back, um, uh, you know, the majority opinion inhabits a law-free zone, right? 
Right. And when we read these kinds of opinions, you know, just ordinary Americans, if they read it, and in fairness, most Americans aren't reading the opinions. Right. But it just pushes us further apart um, as a people rather than, I think, if, you know, you're, I think, a very, I've heard you say so many times, and it doesn't make you popular with, you know, <laughs> other progressives, like some cases are really hard. You yeah. know, it's not obvious that the yeah. Voting Rights Act covers this practice or right. that the Constitution guarantees a right to abortion as much as from a policy perspective, you and me would like it to. Yes. There are hard cases. There are hard questions. And if the court could acknowledge that start with some humility and say, you know, a, a, a five words in a 230 year old document doesn't give us a clear answer to these, you know, these incredibly difficult questions, uh, we would be a lot better off. So in, in preparing for this podcast, I, I was um, thinking about this part of your book, which we're going to move off of in a minute. But uh, two things hit me. Uh, one is that Judge Wilkinson, who you clerked for, I think is one of those judges who admits when things, generally speaking, admits when things are hard. Judge Wilkinson, for those who don't know, is a very senior Republican judge in the Fourth Circuit who about six months after Heller came out or less, wrote a law review article saying Heller and Roe are the same and they're both wrong. And I, I thought that was really brave of him as a Republican. Um, but the second thing is more important. So we had two, we had a couple of them for dinner the other night and we were thinking outside, you know, around, around a fire. And we were thinking about, we all have teenagers and what do we do with the internet? How many hours do we let them be on it? What is their bedtime with phones? Where do their phones go at night? What are the weekend rules? And on and on. I'm going to bore people who aren't parents, but we're all <laughs> really struggling with these issues. Sure. And they're hard. And there were four smart people talking. And maybe my wife and I agree on most things generally, but we might have differing opinions on some of these rules. But one thing we all admitted, we don't know. Like, we don't know what the right answer is. And it made me think of those parts of your book. Would it be so hard for them to say, we have to reach a decision and we will, but this is really hard and reasonable people can disagree and we're just doing our best. That would be great. That would be great. <laughs> and, and in fairness, the Supreme Court has done it. If you look back historically at some of the, the best decisions, the best moments in time uh, when the court has earned the trust of the American people, even the sides, the groups that lose in the Supreme Court, it's basically done that, right? I mean, the, the New Deal settlement after Lochner is the Supreme Court basically saying, gosh, we don't really know what the Commerce Clause means. We don't know if economic liberties, the right to contract is necessary, the kind of liberty protected under the Due Process Clause. Um, these are hard questions. And they do, you know, what you would like them to do. They, right. as a classical Therian, as my former boss, Judge Wilkinson, you know, yeah. a, a sort of proto, a neo Therian would do. They deferred to the legislature. They trusted in the wisdom of the political process, which, which I think is better than forging ahead in a fog of overconfidence. I think we can even do better than Thayerianism, which, you know, maybe we'll talk about a little bit later. But, you know, Thayerianism has some problems, too, because, you know, uh, segregated public schools and Jim Crow, those those legislatures would like some deference to what they've done, too. And I, I know you've got some thoughts on how to get around that problem. Uh, but but yes, I think, you know, if Amer Americans all the time, people all the time make decisions amidst uncertainty when we don't have all the facts where the right, right answers aren't clear. The Supreme Court's just doing that. It never admits it. But if it could admit it, it could do some things that, you know, maybe you and your your wife are doing. Like, what's the less the least harmful way of decide, setting a, a cell phone policy? You know, right. how, how can we do the best we can with the limited knowledge right. we have? I, I, um, I just like the idea of humility. And, and I, I think I think the American people, not in necessarily their elected politicians, but in others, um, 
they want some humility. Like we're all in this together and it's hard stuff and let's try to, and we're going to disagree reasonably and let's figure out as opposed to a, it's a lawless world and it's a radical project where you mentioned about that opinion. Yeah. All right. So let's get to your thesis, but uh, I want to remind you there are non-lawyers listening. So we have to, sure. you know, um, but um, so you have a way of framing kind of how you want the Supreme Court to, to approach all, I think, or most constitutional law questions that they don't do. They've, they've done it sometimes, and you point in your book to certain cases, but it's not a consistent pattern. What do you want the Supreme Court to really think about? Let's use abortion, affirmative action, and guns, all three issues, okay. as kind sure. of our, you know, our outer boundaries of this. And, and go ahead. Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, judicial humility, which we've been talking about, is great. I think we can all see the benefits of it, but like, it's it's like a very small part of the yes. solution. Because, like, as you said, the Supreme Court still has to decide cases, right? You can't just be like, oh, we don't know what the answer is. You know, we're not going to decide, right? Right. So the question is, how do you decide cases when the legal questions are hard, as I actually think is true with all three of the examples you've you've given, guns, abortion, uh, affirmative action? Um, And what I've suggested is the court uh, do what ordinary people do in other hard situations when they don't know the answer, which is they try to do the least harmful thing possible, right? Like the doctor who, like makes a medical diagnosis to do the least amount of harm possible, right? There's all sorts of examples of people think, I don't know the right answer, choice A, choice B, what's the least harmful choice? So what would that look like for the Supreme Court? Well, it's hard in one sense, there's a wrinkle because the Supreme Court can't just look at the outcomes and say one outcome is less bad than the other because the outcomes are so subjective, incommensurable. Like, so let's use abortion as an example, right? The Supreme Court could not and uh, uh, write an opinion in any way that would warrant public trust that says, well, you know, if we rule for the abortion providers, you know, that's going to mean the deaths of some unborn fetuses. Right. Uh, and if we rule uh, against the abortion providers, it's going to mean, you know, pregnant people won't have the right to uh, reproductive autonomy. And we think, you know, the pregnant people would be less harmed if we rule against them. Or we think, you know, the pro-life side would be less harmed. that you just can't write that opinion. There are incommensurable stakes. Right. That's the whole problem. But uh all the time, courts choose between litigants based on a second order, a, a, a question that comes a little further down, which is, if we rule against one side, what can it do after it loses to nonetheless protect itself? Right? If we rule against abortion providers, what options do they have moving forward? If we rule against the pro-life groups, what option would they have? And it turns out if you ask that question, you know, there are actually some really easy cases. Um, I think some of the cases we're about to talk about are actually somewhat hard cases. I, I did like pick three of the hard. Uh, that's fair. I, I picked three of the that's hardest okay. issues we have. Pick an easy case first to make your case. Yeah. So I think the best example, and this is a case the Supreme Court actually decided called Cruzan versus Missouri uh, Director of uh, uh, well, got Human something. Services. Director of something. Longer. I don't know. <laughs> Director of something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and this is a really, really morally freighted, morally difficult case. So it happens when a woman named Nancy Cruzan uh, gets into a car crash and is rendered into a persistent vegetative state. Right. She's in a Missouri state controlled hospital on life support. She's got a nutrition tube, a feeding tube. And she's been that way for four years, but at which with no signs of recovery, every doctor agrees there's no brain, you know, no brain activity. Uh, really tragic stuff. Decide, yes. Yeah. Tragic. Totally tragic. And, the, and her parents decide, you know what, we'd like to remove life support. We think that's what she would want. 
And they have, as evidence, um, a friend of hers, a roommate says, you know, yeah, we had a kind of conversation off of this. And she's like, I wouldn't want to live life like a vegetable or something along those lines. So based on that evidence, a trial court says, yeah, I find more likely than not preponderance of an evidence uh, of the evidence uh, we should remove her feeding tube. And the state of Missouri objects and says, no, uh, we need a clear and convincing evidence standard. And we don't have that kind of strong. There's no living will. Right. And uh, so the Supreme Court grants cert. And the question is, does the due process clause, the liberty guaranteed under the due process clause, guarantee Nancy through her parents a right to remove this unwanted treatment um, that the state is is forcing upon her? Right? It's a hard question, right? Liberty from government restraint. If the state is forcing a tube into her body, that triggers, certainly triggers the liberty interest protected by the due process clause. But on the other hand, right, all the state is saying is you just need clear, convincing evidence, a, a certain evidentiary standard to protect uh, against wrongful terminations, right? And um, the Supreme Court ends up voting for ruling with the state and says, we're going to allow the state to require clear, convincing evidence. This is, by the way, the time of decision, a hugely um, uh, unpopular ruling among uh, progressives, the right, sure. you know, supporters of the right to die. It's obviously very popular among conservatives. It's as stark as as, as stark and, and as Brennan dissented, right? If you're the justice dissent, Brennan dissents, joined by the usual characters, right, Marshall and, and yeah. Blackman. Um, and but the the real reason this is such a great ruling is the 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 way that the Supreme Court writes this opinion, right? Justice uh, uh, Rehnquist's opinion is not. The confident, you know, uh, uh, self-satisfied kind of stuff you'd see today where, you know, no word in the Constitution is there a right to, you know, yada, yada, yada. The other, the dissent is rewriting the law. And instead, the, the uh, Justice Rehnquist's majority opinion is like, this is really hard. This is really, really hard. We've got these loving parents who care for the daughter. If anybody should have this right, it should be them. Um, uh, we've said in other cases, there is a liberty interest here, maybe. So you, I'll, t we're, I'll tell you what we're going to do. What happens if we get it wrong? court says if we get it wrong and we allow the cruzan parents to pull the treatment tube nancy dies but if we're wrong you can't undo that right nancy's dead you can't reconnect her to the to life right. support that is an irrevocable mistake if we get it wrong in the other direction and we say the state ha is allowed to continue treating her until there's a clear and convincing evidence standard a lot of things can happen the most important of which is Nancy's parents can go look for more evidence of their daughter's dying wishes. Um, states can pass laws authorizing uh, people, encouraging people to sign, you know, uh, end of life uh, advanced directives to avoid this problem in the future. And that's exactly what ends up happening. Nancy Cruzan's parents find um, two more witnesses, it turned out, who worked with, who only found out about that this was their their friend, their former friend, Nancy Cruzan, after seeing the case on TV. And they're like, oh, yeah, we were, you know, we were talking with her and she had, you know, very clear wishes here. And so even though they lose, Nancy Cruzan is, is able to pass away peacefully. Um, uh, uh, all 50 states now recognize these advanced medical directives. And so the reason the Supreme Court is able to reach this ruling that everybody's happy with in the end is because it acknowledges the difficulty and says, what's the least harmful? I'm not That's sure everybody's happy about it, Aaron. When I, when I told, told the story to my wife after reading your book, um, one of her reactions was, who's paying? Because that's, a, I, I don't know if the, I, I mean, I think the Cruzans may have been a reasonably middle-class family. I don't know the answer. But to the extent, I mean, that, to the, if, if they had to pay for their two, and it would be very expensive. Oh, yeah. No, that's a good question. My understanding is the state was paying, but okay. but it's a fair point. And and you're right. Not everybody's happy. There are there are certain you know, 
as happy as it can get on an issue on a, 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 this device is maybe the better way. So that's the easy case. What about an abortion, right? So, so you know the the court. Before you, before you do that, let me let me let me sure. let me let me throw you into the fire. So just because when I read because it, it did occur to me reading that it's a beautiful part of your book too, and you write great. Um, if a reasonable person is allowed to believe that a fetus is endowed, a non-viable fetus is endowed with human qualities, and a, a question which neither you nor I nor anybody else can answer. But if that's a reasonable belief to hold, and you apply your rationale and cruise on to the abortion issue, it strikes me that abortion is going to be illegal. <laughs> so I, I think um, I can understand that reaction. Okay. Right. So the question we have to ask is, suppose, uh, you know, the Supreme Court says uh, states cannot ban abortions, right? States cannot protect that interest in uh, uh human life or potential human yeah, life. I don't believe that for a second as, as people. Sure, know, sure. Know. No, but yeah, but yeah. but I think my theory has to start with the acknowledgement yes. that it might be what it might be correct. And that neither like you said, neither you yeah. or I yes. um, can possibly answer that question. We have our personal opinions, right. but um, but that's all that they are. And right. and certainly reasonable Americans have views on the other side. And so the question is, what could uh, pro-life groups do if they're not allowed to ban abortions to protect Right. Because, you know, let's be candid. They're they're stop in their view. They are preventing the murder of, right. you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of innocent lives. And so if they can't criminalize that act, what can they do? Well, to answer the question, you have to start by asking, what does um, criminalizing or banning the procedure actually accomplish? Right. And then we need to compare the alternative, some alternatives. So as a starting point, banning criminal abortion does not end or criminalizing abortion does not end. The practice of abortion never has in any country in never the world has. it never has never has right the best evidence that we have at least from sort of international comparative statistics is that there's a relative decrease of about 10 percent in the number of abortions once a state bans it right we're talking about 40 percent of unwanted pregnancies ending in abortion to go into 36 percent so you know absolute decline four percent relative decline of 10 percent so that was a lot is, of math yeah. for a legal blo- for a legal podcast but go ahead <laughs> i apologize to all listeners uh, so uh Okay, so the question is, are there other ways for pro-life groups to achieve that or even better reductions in in the killing of innocent, in their view, again, innocent um, uh, lives? And the answer is yes, there are a lot of better better options, right? So the best options that's been studied, the research evidence says, if you provide um, uh, fertile individuals, people who are capable of becoming pregnant, child child rearing age, um, free access to contraception. Right. IUDs, pat. You give them a choice: birth control pills, IUDs, patches. Right. right. Any number of choices, um, and you track what happens to their, you know, ultimate fertility choices. It reduces the number of abortions by anywhere. A WashU study found sixty-two to seventy-eight percent. Yeah. So six to seven to eight times more. Like if if we really wanted to end to stop the killing of unborn children, that's what we would do. Aaron, right? minor we, interruption, just because I I can't resist, and I'm sorry. Um, that would work great if the um, so-called pro-life movement as a movement, not talking about individuals in the movement, but as a movement really cared about what Sherry Cole called last week the zygote, but I'll call it the fetus. But they don't. They care about pretending sex doesn't happen. So they don't, they're not, they're not going to be giving out free contraception. George Bush came very close, the second, to sure. outlawing contraception. I mean, he wanted to do stuff to make contraception much harder. Just want to throw that editorial comment. Yeah, in. no, that's I agree right. with that, right? I mean, I, I, 
put it this way. I think it's a it's an available choice because um, it turns out that that position, the like sex doesn't happen position, is not actually very popular within their base. Do you, I'll give you a question. Uh, here's uh, Gallup surveyed all Americans. Uh, I want to say like a, a decade ago, so I don't know if the the more recent data. What percentage of Americans do you suppose opposed uh, contraception as a moral matter? Found it morally improper for every very person? small. Want to take a guess? Ten percent. Four percent. Four percent. Right. Right. So this is like, you know, uh, an incredibly um, this is a, a, this is a gimme from, a you know, pop- but, but now so Paul, the leaders of the Republican Party and what they True. say. <laughs> True. So so that explains why they haven't taken this approach. Right. There's all sorts of political reasons explains why. Right. But that doesn't mean it's not an available alternative. Fair. Right. Um, Fair. Uh, uh, you know, other options. There are other ways to reduce abortions. Right. Obviously, having an actual social safety net providing. Right. High quality childcare, yes. um, any amount of paid family leave, caregiver yes. leave, right? Um, there's all sorts of evidence that reduces abortions too. Um, so, you know, those are options. They're costly. There are some barriers like you've talked about. So it's, I don't want to suggest that like it's easy that the, you know, the pro-life groups can just go do that and it's done and they've costlessly solved the problem of abortion. Um, so now we need to compare it and say, well, what options would the pregnant uh, individual have if abortion were banned, were allowed to be banned? Um, and here it turns out there's a big difference between different kinds of laws, right? So um, one kind of law is uh, 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 an absolute ban, right? Uh, uh, a, a ban, you know, that says no, no individual can ever have an abortion in the state, no matter what just a part of gestational age. Um, and now if that if that's the kind of law that's enacted, well, we can see the kind of burdens it puts on pregnant individuals, especially working class individuals who don't have childcare, time off from work, travel, you know, ability to travel, fly to another state where abortions are legal, right? There's basically no ability to avoid that. You're either going to suffer the harm and have an unwanted child or perhaps worse, engage in dangerous self-care, right? Right. Um, uh, so, in my view, an absolute ban is harder to avoid for um, pregnant individuals than the options that the pro-life groups would have. But now, but compare that against a law like Mississippi's. So this is the law in You Dobbs. got in trouble for this in the, on the left, by the way, which is something that's been happening to me a lot recently. So I was glad to see you joining in the fun. But go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, it's great fun to be uh, attacked by your friends, right? Yes. Uh, happens I, to me to every day. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was attacked uh, even even more fiercely on the right. So, you right. know, I think that's a sign that I'm either doing it all wrong or right. doing something right. Um, <laughs> but a law like Mississippi's that bans um, abortions after 15 weeks, which means about 5% of abortions in America happen after 5, yeah. 15 weeks. Um, but it includes exceptions for medical emergency for the life of the mother, mother for severe congenital abnormalities, uh, um, right? So basically it's only individuals who choose, who wait till after 15 weeks, not for medical reasons, but choose, those abortions are banned. It now strikes me as reasonable for the court to conclude, actually those individuals have um, a better way of avoiding their harm, an easier option than, you know, the state having to provide free contraception to everybody, which is, you know, I, I, it's real hardship. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to duck that issue, but yeah. choose to have the abortion prior to 15 weeks. Um, make a, make that difficult choice before. A- absent a material change in circumstances anyway. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, so Mississippi statute accounts, I think, for many of those circumstances with these medical exceptions. A statute that didn't have those medical exceptions, I think, would be much harder. You could make the argument that, you know, it's impossible for a person right. who tests, you know, uh, uh, you know, especially to threaten the life of the mother at 20 weeks. You know, if there's no exception for that, that's a harm that's very difficult for that person to avoid. So but but that um, but yeah. So, so I mean, 
this is the kind of analysis that we engage in. It points the litigants to their option, right? Rather than focusing on who's got the right and who doesn't, who's of constitutional regard and who's of, who is not, the whole analysis is what options do we have moving forward? Acknowledging that this is a hard problem that divides the American public, you know, the court's going to try and be a solution finder. So, Aaron, one one question. So, so to, to put it concisely, um, I read you as articulating a least harm principle that if we and not all cases are amenable to it, I think you'd agree to that. But where the cases are amenable to it, the court should really look at which party is is most capable of avoiding the harm of an adverse decision. Do I have that right? You nailed it. And, you know, I probably should have given the definition and named the principle. Sure. This is, you know, I need at some point if there when the book or if the book comes out, I'll need to to practice this. But right. The this, the the theory is the least harm principle, um, a least harm approach to hard questions of constitutional law, statutory law. And the idea is exactly what you say. When we don't know who's right based on textualism or originalism, the court should try to do the least harm possible by ruling against the side that has the best options, the best alternatives for avoiding its harm after it loses the case. Okay. So I want to I want to say something nice, and then I want to ask you a hard question. <laughs> Great. The nice part is, um, I don't know if you have me persuaded on this. Um, I think it is a wildly smart- That's the nice part? <laughs> <laughs> That's the nice sorry. part. A wild, sorry, well, this is the nice part. No, this is the nice part. It's a wildly smart and original idea. And again, as I said at the earlier at the outset, and by the way, I read your article for Stanford. Stanford asked me to, to review that years ago, where this came from, and I thought same thing at the time. This least harm principle, and 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 it's much more complicated than you and I can pay, can do it justice in this hour, um, is original and smart. And to say anything original and smart about constitutional law is an amazing thing, especially somebody as young as you are. So that's a great thing. I don't care if people are convinced or not; they should read this book when it comes out. Now here's the hard part. Because you never say this, neither article, your article or the book, I don't think you concede this. Is this something to be used when the law runs out? Or is this something to be used? So for, let's take affirmative action now as an example. To me, and I know this is going to sound highly opinionated and many people, especially a guy named Mike Rappaport, is going to tell me I'm wrong, but I'm not. Mike is wrong about this. Um, there is no legalistic, formalistic argument available to the Supreme Court to do, in my opinion, what they're going to do next year, which is strike down all affirmative action. It's not in the text. It's not part of the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. It just isn't. There were affirmative action programs back then. The court can strike it down under its living constitution approach. That's fine. But there's no legal, there's no formalistic kind of conservative way to get there. This, except that I'm right, even if you don't disagree with me about that, but except that I'm right. Why do we have to even engage in a harm analysis, if I'm right about that, where the court should say, this, there's nothing in law to prevent this. States can do it. Yeah. So um, taking your assumption is a given, which I'm, yeah. I, you know, I'm personally disposed from a policy perspective that, to that view. I think the question is hard. My yeah. own take, you know, I, I think Mike Rappaport. Oh, the policy question is hard. The originalism well, question the, is I, not. Yeah. Well, let, let, I, let's just accept that you're right for okay. that, just because the question is so good. Okay. Um, if that's true, we don't apply least harm analysis in cases where the law is clear. Okay, right. That's what we have to do. There's no ifs and or buts. Okay, so, so that makes a big is, difference. I don't know if you're clear about that in your book, by the way. So I'm going to yeah make you okay. a, that, a, a public down, a I public can. recommendation. <laughs> yes, <laughs> to make absolutely. that really Point clear. Point well taken. 
Yeah. Point well taken. Point yeah. well taken. Um, so what that does is it introduces a, a another ambiguity, which makes the theory maybe harder to apply, which is before you even get to the question of which side has the better options for avoiding its harm, you need a threshold and uh, decision that it's a hard case and Fair. different people can, you know, you and I are reasonable people. We could disagree on whether something's hard or not. Yeah. Um, but I just want to suggest that that's normal. Judges face these kinds of two-step decisions all the time, right? Like Chevron is a classic example. Step one, is the law clear or not? If the law is clear, we don't even get to the agency. Well, at least today. Uh, at least today. So yeah, who knows what it'll look like tomorrow, <laughs> right? But, you know, take it like contract law, right? Like, uh, you know, the there's this doctrine of contra proferentum, right? We construe a contract against its drafter when it's ambiguous on the theory that the drafter could have been more clear and so therefore they lose, right? But the the contract has to be ambiguous sure. first. Sure. Right? And different people can and can and so what happens when that when you have nine people and they're trying to decide a case with a two step inquiry is some of them are going to say we think the law is clear some of them are going to say uh, they don't and the ones who think the law is clear they're going to vote a certain way but as long as there are justices who think the question is hard those justices would move on and do the least harm analysis that's going to be yeah, at least under Marx the narrowest opinion uh, um, deciding the case because it's going to leave the most undecided right relative to the like absolutist this is the clear. Uh, statement of the law. And so you will have, you know, as long as somebody thinks the law, uh, the case is, the legal question is hard, they'll have to go ahead to step two. So on affirmative action state. specifically, where yeah. we know f with certainty that California, Michigan, and maybe four or five other states have outlawed affirmative action through the legislative process. My question to you is, if that's an out, because no one, other than Justice Sotomayor, I think, no one is, I mean, I've not read many people to argue states have to have affirmative action. The question is, are they allowed to have affirmative action? Sure. If the legislative process is a way out, sure. shouldn't the court defer in most constitutional cases and say, look, the, the loser can get to the legislature? Yeah. So I, I think this is actually a situation where it turns out both sides are going to have more plausible options mm -hmm. than the public dialogue assumes, right? The right is out there saying, like, this is our only way. We have to ban it through the courts or else, you know, we're going to have a racial entitlement society, yada, right. yada, yada. And the left's out there saying, if we don't have this, right, it's going to be the end of diversity in higher education, right? right. All sorts of institutions. As usual, going to their corners and making the most ridiculous arguments, yeah. Exactly. But I think that's wrong on both sides. You've identified why it's wrong on the on the right. Right. Like it's still a mystery to me why this the state of Texas needed to file a lawsuit in the Fisher case uh, um, or why, why, you know, why Abby, Abigail Fisher needed to file a lawsuit rather right. than not the University of Texas right. had to file a lawsuit in the Fisher case. When it's so clear that a super majority of Texans would would vote for a statute, a constitutional amendment to ban affirmative action at, at the flagship school. I mean, in California, right, we just voted to on Prop 209 again to try and reverse it, which Prop 209 is the one that bans affirmative yep. action in college colleges here in California. And it went down to defeat. 55 percent of Californians oppose affirmative action. Right. Right. So your point is just if you want to get rid of affirmative action, you don't need the Supreme Court of the United States to do it. Use the good, you know, the, the that is my point. Policy. Is that part of your least harm analysis? It absolutely would. Okay. Be. Yes. Okay. And but the question is, we need to, we do need to compare that to what options are on the other side because okay. it turns out if we if the Supreme Court does overrule affirmative action, maybe institutions of higher. Oh, so here's the problem with that. By the way, that works for um, that works for public universities. Yeah. Right. So the grant, the cert grant yesterday, you might have noticed the court granted the Harvard case, which is the much talked about case. It also granted insert before judgment uh, companion case at the University of North Carolina uh, challenging the same race conscious admissions policy. 
Um, the options that we've talked about, right? The states can pass a law banning affirmative action, um, uh, certainly with respect to their own institutions, right? Private colleges are a little bit harder, right? A state like Texas can't ban Harvard's, uh, can't pass a statute banning Harvard's affirmative action policy. Harvard's in Massachusetts, uh, obviously, and Massachusetts isn't going to. It's not clear, right? So Harvard's only bound by the same uh, strict scrutiny because the Supreme Court has interpreted the federal statute, Title VII, it to be coterminous with the Equal Protection Clause for purposes of evaluating right. affirmative action policy. Well, wait, well, wait, wait, so wait, wait. You lo- Aaron, you lost me. I'm sorry. You lost me. Sorry. Um, the people of Massachusetts could bar Harvard Got it. Got from it. discriminating on the basis of race and define the, I don't believe Harvard is. Yes. We're, we're going to get to that in a minute. But they could pass a Title um, VI, a state Title VI statute. Yes. And the state Supreme Court could interpret it. And they're elected in, in a way, in most states, in a way that would ban affirmative action. Again, we don't need the federal fair. Supreme Court to do this. So that's that's fair. I think that's I think that's totally reasonable. Um, I think that's less likely. I mean, it's hard to imagine Massachusetts doing that. It's put it this way. Private colleges are going to be harder to reach. If you're a, if you're an anti affirmative action activist out there, um, Public universities are going to be the lowest hanging fruit. I mean, sure. University of Michigan, University of California show that, right? The sure. private schools are going to be harder, right? But still doable um, if you think, you know, the state of Massachusetts, the state legislature would pass that kind of law. And um, uh, it's possible, but not right. not as easy. So let's compare that to what options are available to um, folks in favor of race conscious admissions policies. And I think the true answer here is like, how much do you care about the SAT? Right. And if the answer is my answer, none, very little. Like I think it's a poor predictor it's of my answer too. Academic quality. I think it's got horrible racial, uh, disparate racial impact. Uh, and that's by the way true even after controlling for socioeconomic factors and other right. family factors, right? Um, you know, here's the here's the evidence. So California just banned use of the SAT and the ACT and its higher education admissions, and that's you know one major way that we're getting representative. You know, still doing our best to have broad academic diversity. Um, but at, at public you know, schools, so, at public schools, right? At public schools, yeah, yeah. But Harvard. Um, so uh, uh, the, there's really great. The district court opinion in the Harvard case is so good because I agree. So I think it's a great opinion. I keep telling people to read it before they make judge, judgments about the case. Yeah, I think it's fantastic because it so closely analyzes the alternative plans that are put out there. Yeah. Um, and it turns out so there's this plan um, admissions. So part of the, so just to back up for readers, right? The question is, in a affirmative action case, um, this this the university Harvard has to surmount strict scrutiny, right? The hardest test in all of uh, of constitutional law. It has to show that its race conscious admissions policy is narrowly tailored or the least restrictive way to achieve diversity, academic diversity. Right? And so what the district court does is it looks at all these other plans and says, hey, if we don't take race into account in Harvard's admissions policies, would these alternative plans still achieve racial academic diversity? And the best plan that's put forth is put forth by a professor named Richard Kalenberg. And it turns out it does three things that we really all progressives ought to agree with. It gets rid of legacy admissions. Right. It turns out legacy admissions is like the worst possible thing for racial diversity. Yeah. We should all want to get rid of that. Yes. Um, it gives heavy preference for socioeconomic diversity. Right. Right. Fam- individuals, whether white or black, brown, Latino, right, Wh- whomever. If you come from a a, a poor 
uh, family environment, right? You should get a bump, right? If you're qualified to go to a college and you come and you've overcome that kind of adversity, you absolutely, in my view, deserve it more than someone who's privileged like myself. Um, and then the third thing it does is it dra dramatically, I think in Harvard's case, reduced the average SAT score of admitted, admitted students by 70 points, right? If you do that, Latino representation stays the same. Uh, in Harvard's case, black representation fell from 13 to 10% of their student class. So that's a significant difference. I think if, you know, if you reduce the SAT score more or frankly, just got rid of it altogether, um, right? And the reason this works, the reason if you do all these things and you can still get a broad, um, uh, broadly diverse uh, uh, incoming class is because it turns out that um, uh, inequality in higher education admissions is purely a function of inequality in K through 12 education. Right. Uh, not purely. That's overstatement. There's a lot of other mostly. Factors. I'd say mostly. <laughs> it's mostly right. Yeah. If we provided, you know, poor kids, black and brown kids, the same kind of schools that, you know, you and I are trying to send our kids to. Right. Um, that we're lucky enough to be able to do. Um, you know, it turns out, hey, there's nothing. The, the kids will all succeed at the same rate. Right. Right. Um, so. Uh, um, but, the, but the trial judge concluded that was not a sufficient plan. And the reason is because Harvard shouldn't be required to drop its SAT scores by 70 points. Basically, right. it, was, it was like Harvard should have the, you know, the educational discretion to make that choice, which is so bad for, for I mean, the pathologies that the SAT has had, not just for race, but for like the U.S. news, the rankings, yes. race. And like, yeah. um, if we could just get rid of the SAT, if, if so, I guess my point is this, if um, the court, as it will, strikes down affirmative action uh, in these cases, um, what will progressives do? What options do they have? And schools like Harvard that care, and as I think they do, about academic diversity, broad racial included, racial diversity included, they're going to uh, reduce their reliance on the SAT, maybe drop it all together like the University of California. They're going to give socioeconomic advantages. They're going to do all these things that are good. They're going to be able to, they're going to do pipeline programs to increase applications amongst um, disadvantaged and, and students of color, which are perfectly permissible, right? And, um, you know, that's going to do a lot. It's not. It might not get us 100% of the way there, but it's going to do a lot to keep the levels of diversity, and it might have some positive spillover effects as well. So I don't think this is like the end of the world um, for progressives if and when affirmative action is, is struck down. So I, that's interesting. So first of all, I want to be clear to the audience that I invited you three weeks ago. So, so, the point of this is I invited you well before the court granted cert yesterday. And uh, we're taping this on Tuesday. The court granted cert on Monday. It'll come out on Thursday or so. But um, I didn't have you on to talk about affirmative action. I had you on to talk about your book um, and this least harm principle, which I think is fascinating, provocative, and smart. Um, but we've articulated that when this book comes out, um, people should buy it and read it. Or they can read your Stanford article now, um, which is called the least harm principle, right? Uh, it's called, let's see, what's it called? It's called, oh, there's harm avoider constitutionalism, which right. is a yeah. University of California. Yeah, right. Yeah. In California, right, right. Sorry. Okay. But no, it's all good. Um, but, but, now yeah, I I mean, talk, but, I, but I do want to yeah. talk about affirmative action now because, sure. um, um, so it, it strikes, so I think, so every case the Supreme Court has ever decided prior to the granting of cert in the Harvard case has been more or less a white, black or white, Hispanic type case. Uh, in Texas, it's mostly white Hispanic. All the other cases are white black cases, pretty much. Um, the Harvard case was brought specifically to pit, in my opinion, one minority against another. Um, because the group that brought it doesn't care about Asians. I'm sorry, they don't. They, they, they care about white people. Uh, but, but the allegation is, and I, and I find this fascinating, that Harvard 
to be to get into Harvard College as an Asian requires higher test scores and higher grades than any other group, right? That's what the data shows. And when compared to blacks and Hispanics by a huge amount, you have to do like 100 points better to get in. And I understand why that upsets people. I do. I get it. But my perspective on this is Harvard is trying to build a diverse class across many different dimensions. Geography, interest, sports, class, which is the least successful at, I think, of anything, um, even though they have a bigger endowment than most countries, um, many countries. Um, and so they don't want 80% whites, that, and they don't have 80% whites, I don't think. They, they, they don't want 60% black or Asian. They're just trying to build a diverse class. And they don't just go by the numbers. So when people say Asians have to score more than X to get in, which sounds inherently unfair, I admit, that's not even a, that's just a very small part of that story. Because if you're a donor's child, then you also can score 100 points less and get in. And if you're a great football player and for some reason want to go to Harvard, I think, you can have 80 points less and get in. What's your take on all that? Leaving aside the law. Forget the law now, Aaron. I, want, I just want your emotional or whatever take yeah. on this. So, you know, I was the beneficiary of an elite Ivy League education. I went to yeah. Yale for undergrad. Yeah. Um, I was the beneficiary of a different kind of affirmative action, which was geographic affirmative action. I grew mm-hmm. up in a you know small sort of rural town in Ohio. Right. Um, no, you know, the I remember when like a Harvard recruiter came for my interview. He's like, we've never been here before we never had you know something like uh i have no doubt that that played a significant role in my being admitted into into yale um and i and i take that to be of a piece with what you're saying which is like hey if these institutions are trying to train like future leaders of america we want them to and gosh never more important than a time like now when the coasts seem so different and divided from middle america don't we want to bring people from all parts of the country all socioeconomic backgrounds racial backgrounds academic uh athletic backgrounds right don't religious background don't we want all of that yes um in these places and i think the answer is absolutely yes i as a policy matter love that universities can do that and i'm sure the elite schools will continue to do that even after affirmative action explicitly is struck down they're going to figure out other ways to get there like socioeconomic factors and so on um so i I agree with all of of what you're saying that's that's a good thing that we have universities like that i just i'm not worried about you know i'm not worried that harvard's going to come back tomorrow after this case and be like all right well can't take race into account we're going to have no you know black or latino students like that's not what harvard's going to choose no in fact um, so the, the the last major affirmative action case the court decided was Fisher versus Texas II, um, where Justice Kennedy kind of surprisingly changed sides for the first time in his career on affirmative action. Before that case came out, I talked because we all thought the court was going to end affirmative action. Then um, I talked to three different admissions directors at elite schools in the Northeast. All I said, what are you going to do if the Supreme Court in June says you can't look at race, you're not allowed? Take the, take it off the application form. You can't check it. Now, of course, in this social media world, I, you know, obviously you can always check, but most of the time you can check. But they said, we're not going to follow it. All three of them said, we're not going to follow it. We will take race into account. They'll just never know because it's that important to us. And I thought that was interesting. Um, probably shouldn't be saying that. Um. <laughs> uh, no, I, I have no problem saying that because there's still. Well, because, no, not you. They. Uh, oh, you're, they. You can say whatever you want to well, say. Well, one they, of them was willing to go on the record. 
One of them was going to go on the record, but then the court went the other way. Um, yeah. You know, there's still prayer all over the South in public schools. I mean, it, the ACLU can only, fi- can only file so many suits, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and my point about all that is if there's going to be that much pushback, I'm not sure what the court is doing. Well, you know, well, but another way of looking at it, and I'll, let me flip that on you. Yeah. Uh, and every, I see everything through least harm colored glasses. Yeah. If if it's true um, that the easy that all the university of all Harvard College is going to have to do after affirmative action is no longer constitutional is do exactly what it was doing, just not talk about it as much. Right. Right. If that's all they have to do and they, they get the exact same classes and that's perfectly constitutional, then surely um, they're the least they're, they have the easiest option, the best option for avoiding their harm. So just keep doing what they're doing. What? Um, well, well, back up. What harm does affirmative action cause and to whom? You're assuming there's harm well, on the other side. What's what? Yeah, what is what? What is the harm? Right, 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 right. So, so if option one, the Supreme Court says affirmative action is allowed, right, right, and then in that case, Harvard keeps doing what it's doing. It doesn't have to change yeah. what it's doing. And then you have to ask, well, what harm is being done to Abigail Fisher and students, you know, uh, who, you know, white students who are denied admission? And I think, you know, or Asian the, students the, who are denied admission, or Asian students. And I think there's a plausible argument that they have suffered stigma in virtue of being uh, rejected, assuming they're qualified on other means. On ah, but that, but that's the key there. Reason. Assuming they're qualified on other means. That's not how Harvard looks at it. They, they have too many qualified. Everybody's qualified. Not everybody, but they, they could fill a class of 10,000, I think, they think. Right, right, right. I, I guess I didn't mean that in terms of like a, um, they would be in but for race kind of thing, because that's right. very hard to show. I guess yeah. what I mean is like, you know, you have to pass a threshold. You have to be qualified. You have to, you know, uh, uh, to be in that basket, in that in, I know, believe in that the pile. district court made an express finding that everybody Harvard took was qualified under Harvard's standards. I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to disagree with that. What I what I'm trying to suggest is like, you know, the student who like drops out of like tenth grade. Right. You know, the privileged student who drops out of tenth grade and it's like, oh, no, I want to go to Harvard. Right. They they can't. They haven't been harmed by Harvard's race conscious admissions file, right. but plausibly an individual who like the th- tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands are qualified under Harvard's metrics, um, who does apply and they're white and, you know, doesn't get in. They've, their chances of admission have been reduced because of the consideration of their race. I, I think that's a, uh, you know, listen, it's not going to make me popular, might not make me popular, but putting yourself in that person's shoes, I think that's a, a, a cognizable injury, a, a reduced chance. I don't think it's a terribly serious injury. They can go to some other great college, right. uh, I'm sure. Um, so I, if I were comparing injuries, the, you know, the severity, I would say it's not that important, but that's not the role, court's role or my role to tell someone when they haven't really been injured that much. Um, but I do think it's cognizable. So, you know, that's the injury on that side. The injury on Harvard side, if it's not allowed to take race into account, is it can't build a racially diverse class. But you, what I just heard from you is actually they can, because what they're going to do is they're going to ignore students for, for you know for fair admissions versus Harvard. They're just going to take race into account anyways. They're just going to do it on the on the down low. They'll get the exact same racial diversity. They're going to avoid their harms. And if that's really true, then the Supreme Court should rule against Harvard College. If col- if racial diversity is not going to be affected at all in these in in these institutions, I'm not sure that's true. But if 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 what your these admissions directors are telling you is is accurate, um, I don't see the harm how they're harmed by. Well, well no, I think what they no, I, I well what was expressed to me and what I think is first of all in states that have outlawed affirmative action, I do think minority enrollments have gone down. True, the data shows yes. that. Yes. Um, but what I, but more importantly, there's a d- dramatic harm to those. All three admissions directors, when they told me that, and especially the one who was willing to go on the record, which was 
kind of amazing to me, but they were. Um, they did articulate a harm. We don't like violating the law. It's not something we want to do. Um, and it's not something that we're proud of. And it's not. But our interest in diversity is simply too important to let yeah. these unelected life ten- this is them talking not Siegel talking yeah no, unelected totally. life tenure judges in DC tell us what we can and cannot do um, so yeah it's, it's interesting Aaron I think the least harm principle is interesting here because um, they're blaming the wrong people SFAA really should be blaming alumni kids more than Harvard's affirmative action program I think are and we sure get, SSF, get, get, SSFA, as you said earlier alumni kids Aren't say they again? the alumni kids? Are, are SFFA the alumni kids? <laughs> say one more time, I'm sorry. Aren't, aren't, aren't SFFA, the, aren't Students for Fair Missions also the alumni kids? Well, sure, fair enough. But <laughs> take away legacies and take away SATs, and a lot of the harm will be relieved. For um, poor, you know, for, for middle-class working whites, yes. But, you know, I think a lot of this... I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just... I'm pointing out a little bit of the hypocrisy here of what's, right. go, what's going on. Like, this is, a, you know, these are upper class, you know, wealthier. Um, uh, um, um, these lawsuits are often filed for upper class uh, affluent whites yes. and Asians, frankly. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, uh, so that's why they're not out there trying to target legacy or donation, right? The side door admissions but, process. But on the your least harm principle, that's exactly what they should be doing, as opposed to targeting poor kids from poor minority kids you know, who are getting a leg up. I mean, okay, we don't have to. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, we're running out of time. I could talk talk about this forever no with worries, you. Yeah. Let's apply your least harm principle to the gun case pending this term. So New York basically doesn't allow public carry. Uh, you know, in Man- I, that makes total sense to me for Manhattan. I'm not sure how I feel about it for Rochester. But for Manhattan, it, God, if New York City can't carry the public, can't ban the public carrying of guns in Times Square, I don't know where we are in life. But anyway, ha- um, that... But the law applies to all of New York State, I believe, right? And 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 how would you yeah. resolve that kind of Second Amendment issue sure. under the least harm principle? So, so just to be clear, the, so the New York law, what it does is it is a it's a special need yes. permitting system, yes. right? So not everybody. So in forty one states, if you pass certain objective qualifications, you have no felony convictions, you take a gun class, right? right. You the the state shall issue a permit to carry a gun in public. Yes. Some are concealed, some are open yeah. carry. Um, New York is one of nine jurisdictions that says uh, you have to apply and show a special reason for right. carrying the gun, a special defense, self-defense need above and beyond the ordinary member of the public, right? Maybe a restraining order out yeah. against somebody or you have like, you know, you've been attacked before an incredibly yeah. dangerous neighborhood perhaps, right? Yeah. Um, and that's the permitting system. These challengers, the gun owners are challenging. Um, interestingly, and I think the facts matter here, there are two named um, app member plaintiffs who filed affidavits explaining why they wanted these permits. One gentleman said, yeah, I don't have a, I just want to carry a gun in public. I don't have a special reason. Right. The other said, there's been a string of robberies on my street, you know, on my block. Um, I want to carry, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful. I'm in danger. I want to carry a gun. Right. right? So I think that matters um, the, 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 so, uh, for least harm reasons we'll point out. Okay. So how would the least, so let's assume that as I think Heller itself shows, if you're an originalist, this is a difficult question, right? Yes. There's a bunch of evidence on both sides. Um, well, actually, it's not, but I'll, I'll, I'll grant that for sake of argument. No, no historian thinks that. Almost no historian thinks that. But I'll give you that for sake of argument. Go ahead. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and so the question is, okay, let's suppose we rule against 
um, the the state let's yeah. rule against New York and say you can't limit guns in this way. What can the state do? And I think here you saw the Supreme Court at oral argument actually do this kind of didn't call it a least harm analysis or a least harm principle, but it asked these kinds of questions. Chief Justice Roberts was in the vanguard, but Justice Barrett was asking these kinds of questions too. Well, what if instead we let New York um, pass a bunch of um, time, place, or manner type regulations, right. borrowing from the First Amendment context, right? And so the Chief Justice is like, could you ban guns at, at crowded venues like sports stadiums? And Paul comments like, yeah. It's like, could you ban guns on subways, public transportation? Sure, you could do that, right? Could you ban guns at the university campuses like you know, NYU or Columbia? Sure, you could do that. Could you ban guns anywhere that serves alcohol? Paul comments like, that would be a harder case, but maybe, right? Yeah. And now you start to see this is like, what can New York do? Anywhere where you're actually worried about a mass shooting happen, you can pass a law saying can't carry a gun here. You can carry a gun in you know upstate New York, right, right. where we're not worried about mass shoot shootings. Um, and if that's truly what the Supreme Court writes in this opinion, you know, it's 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 um, not my preference from a policy perspective, but it it solves quite a bit of the problem um, for for those of us seriously worried about gun violence. Now you have to compare it to what options are available on the other side. I don't think the Supreme Court is going to do this. Um, I think oh, I think they will. I think they're going to say that the guy on the on the street has no other option to protect himself. Well, so that's it. Really interesting. I've I've tried to suggest this. I, I wrote an op-ed in the L.A. Times because when the Supreme Court changed the the question presented to focus on the individual petitioner's applications, I thought right. this is what they were doing. But they didn't really ask that many questions about it or argument. But it's still possible the court could write a, an opinion a very different opinion and say uh, one of the two individuals wins. Uh, the guy who has a special need, the right. string of robberies in front of the house, he has a second amendment right to this gun um, consistent with the history. Cause it turns out there are all sorts of historical examples of states limiting who could carry guns and yes. to people with special cause. Exactly. The, not exactly a similar historical analog to this. It wasn't an upfront permitting system or licensing system. Um, but the individual who has no undifferentiated need, uh, uh, sorry, no special need undifferentiated from the public. He doesn't have a right. So that would be a very least harm ruling, right? Like yeah. um, that, I, that would be fantastic if the court did that. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, if the court really if it wanted to go continue going down the least harm route, it would say, like, if we rule against individuals who want guns for self-defense, um, what options do they have? I would love to see the court talk about non-lethal self-defense. Right. Taser gun right. tasers. I would love to see the court talk about or call for fact finding and remand for some fact finding. They say, never do that. And that's what I like best about your theory is it requires them so once once a podcast, I mean, we're running out of time, so I'm going to have to end it in a minute. But once a podcast, I have to mention Judge Posner because that's what I do. Um, everybody would know that. And um, he would love this analysis. I mean, I, he really would love this analysis because he would say, first of all, in all these cases, the law is going to leave open all kinds of avenues, most of these cases, as we, you and I agree on, hard con sure. law cases. And then look at the consequences. Look at the actual results on the ground. And if this guy really is suffering or harm by not walking down the street armed because there's been a string of robberies, he should be able to be armed and, and that kind of thing. Um, do, here's my last question about your thesis on this. Because I, 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 think, I think there's a lot to be said for it. And anything that gets us away from arid formalism is great. And this is the least formalistic theory I've seen in a long time. So kudos on that. Um, do we trust these, lawyer, these lawyers trained in law school to read Supreme Court cases and so on? to make this kind of analysis? Because it feels complicated to me. 
Yeah, that's a great question. It's exactly the right kind of question to be asking. So I want to suggest that we already do trust judges to do this. Um, so, you know, some of the examples are going to be non-controversial, right? But this is this is like very basic law and economics. Uh -oh. This is Guido Calabrese, um, <laughs> who I've talked to about this theory, right? This is um, the lowest cost avoider theory of tort law as applied to constitutional law, right? And so if we're okay with a rule in tort law saying, as I think every listener will know, if you're a rear, if you're a driver and you get into a, you, you rear end somebody. It's your fault. You're at fault, yeah. right? Why? There's no moral reason. Like the person in front could be totally negligent. No, this happened to me. I, it, this happened to me. I was rear-ended. I was very far from the car in front of me. I ran into that car. My fault. Yeah, your fault. And the guy, for all we know, the guy in the front could have just like fallen asleep at the wheel, right? Because right? he was out partying, right. Like, like, right? And the reason it's still the right rule is because the person in the back has options. They can trail further behind because right. they know they're at fault. They can structure the behavior. Person in front, you know, they're going to be good faith people. And the grandma crosses the street. They have to slam their brakes. Right? right. They, nothing they can do about that. Right. Person in the back has choices, options to avoid the harm. The person in the front does. If we think that courts are competent to make that kind of decision, like which the front driver, or the rear driver, who can avoid their harms better? If we think the court can in, do strict scrutiny, can do any kind of tailoring, tailoring analysis, which asks, can the government avoid its harms? through some alternative, right? How available, how effective would that alternative be? That's what I'm asking. That's what the least harm principle asks judges to do. So I, I don't think it's that different. It's just, it's more candid that, you know, we have to compare. We, ha we can't just ask about the government, what options right. it has. We have to ask about the plaintiffs. What options uh, do they have for avoiding that? So, so I think that's a great answer, Aaron. And um, so taking your article and your book together, both, both things, um, it seems to me, if I get this wrong, tell me, you are advocating that in cases where the law is difficult, which is basically every constitutional law case that American citizens care about, almost everyone. Um, I, I actually think affirmative action is an exception to that, but let's not fight about that here. Um, the court already, built into its analysis, has this kind of unstated least harm idea in con law, in tort law it's stated, but here it's unstated, they should put it more front and center and be more open about it, do more fact finding. And it's not the only thing, and it's not everything, but it should be a bigger part of the analysis. Is that a fair? That's exactly right. And the benefits, not only do I think the decisions would ultimately do less harm, I think it would be so helpful for our political culture, right? Because what the Supreme Court does right now when it writes these overconfident opinions, you know, uh, only one person has a constitutional right here. And it's Abigail Fisher. It's the it's the white students who have been discriminated right. against, and all those people who want you know racial diversity. They're advocating for critical race theory. You know, like it just right. divides us further apart when you try to give a single right answer where there's right. none to be found. When you instead write an opinion, the Supreme Court writes an opinion that says this is hard. Both sides have legitimate arguments, legitimate interests. Let's try to find some solutions. And if the court explicitly says we're going to rule against you. Harvard, but here are all the other things you can do. Right, right? You can right. take socioeconomic factors right. into account. You can get rid of legacy admissions. Right. Think about how much better that opinion is for America right. when we start start yeah. pointing towards solutions instead of pointing fingers at each side. So my last podcast of 2021 was with Jamal Green of Columbia, and he's been he's in, he's incredible. He's incredible. And, he's, and I'm, I'm reviewing his book for Constitutional Commentary. It's coming out sometime next few months, and the thesis of his book is actually very related to the thesis of your book. J Jamal also doesn't like the overconfident. None of us, 
if you think about it, should like the overconfident rhetoric that Justice Scalia, I think, made much worse for all of us. Um, but his view was foreign countries, foreign Supreme Courts that have just reviewed do much better in, in being less all or nothing. And he wants more of a proportionality analysis and take into account the facts on the ground and try to reach more compromise, which I think is every, that's all the stuff you also want. I, the, they're very yes, I, and Jamal's been very influential. Reading a lot of his work's been influential for me. I, I think the main place where we would differ is I take proportionality analysis to do a little bit of what you know your um, mentor Judge Posner <laughs> would do, which is to like at some point you just judges have to nakedly compare the consequences yes. and say which side is better off, which side would be worse off yes. by um, uh, after this case. And and I want to get out of that business because I I think especially in America. Any decision that says, you know, people who support race conscious admissions, they, their interest just isn't as important as people who oppose it. It's just going to be deeply divis- divisive. I want to bump the question one. I know I don't want to ask that kind of question, which side has more at stake. Right. I want to bump the question one lower and say both sides have a ton of stake. We're ca- we can't, you know, balance in the way proportionality and, uh, and, uh, would do one side's interest against the other and say one side's interests are weightier. Right. But what we can do is say. They're both important. Who can protect themselves after they lose in court better than the other side? That's I, the I, I think Jamal would take that as a friendly amendment, actually, probably. Uh, but you, you can, you can, you can, when he reviews your book, you can find out. But I think <laughs> if, if he reviews your book. Um, Aaron, thank you so much for being here. This was really interesting to me. I want to repeat, you've said something original and smart about constitutional law. And that's happened. I've seen like three of those things in my 31 years. So um, I, I just, I'm very, I was very impressed by the article. I'm more impressed by the book and I wish you all the luck in the world with both. Thanks so much for, for all that you've done for us and, and uh, for me. I uh, really appreciate you having me. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for being on.